And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of Atlantic and Coastal, the Athletics ACC podcast. I am your Virginia Tech football beat writer, Andy Bitter, and the host of Atlantic Coastal, coming to you after week one. Uh, In a way, we're all winners with college football being back. Uh, In a more accurate way, the ACC was not a winner on the opening weekend when we have this calamitous of an opening weekend for a league we need to bring in the big guns to help put everything into perspective uh we have matt fortuna our national football college writer at the athletic co-host of the shamrock does a great job on that uh but notre dame is no longer in the co- in the conference we'll still get to him in this one but matt uh i have to ask you uh that was a pretty rough weekend for the acc uh sum it up for us how bad it was yeah, you sounded a little bit like Commissioner Jim Phillips in your intro, talking about how we're all winners. And then uh, I thought you were introducing Commissioner Jim Phillips with that intro. I appreciate the uh, the, the grand entrance there. As Phillips said on the broadcast at Florida State Sunday night, I'm bullish on the ACC, and he kind of left it at that. Um, I'm not as bullish on the ACC. I thought um, that Georgia-Clemson game going in, I think we all kind of thought, you know, the loser of this is not out of the playoff, but... Georgia will have a much easier time getting back into it than Clemson will. Because if Georgia lost the opener and ran through the SEC, they're getting in as a one-loss SEC champion. I think Clemson probably would be in the same category, but the ACC is not the SEC. I mean, Clemson's playing UConn in another non-conference game. This year. UConn is a 33.5-point home underdog against Purdue this weekend and just had their coach resign after two games into the season. He tried to retire. They would have let him retire. So, look, I still think Clemson is good. I mean, like, you don't think any worse of Brent Venables' defense coming out of last week. That's for sure. The offense was not exactly what we expected. I'm not sure we've ever seen a performance. We definitely haven't seen a performance like that from Clemson's offense since Tony Elliott and Jeff Scott took over in 2015. The most recent I can think of is when they lost at Georgia Tech in 2014. Um with Chad Morris as a play caller, I think Deshaun Watson tore his ACL in that game, and they lost 28-6. to um, But Miami, I kind of expected that. Like, it's Alabama. I, I'm not going to knock them for it. I hope for their sake they don't let this derail their season the way so many Week 1 Alabama opponents tend to do. <coughs> cough, cough, Duke, uh, which hasn't been the same program, I will remind you, since that Alabama opener in 2019. And we saw that Friday night. Um, I was not terribly surprised by that. Charlotte's a good football team. It was the first time they ever hosted a Power 5 team on their campus. Duke, um, by all accounts and by our own four eyes, the last two years has not been a very good team, um, which is a shame because I think we all on a personal level love David Cutcliffe and hope he can 
write a, an appropriate exit strategy for himself, whether it's this year or next year, and it doesn't look like it's going all swimmingly in that department right now in Durham. Um, and then the other one, would, the, the one that surprised me more than anything was Georgia Tech losing to Northern Illinois at home. Um, you knew that was a long rebuild ahead for Jeff Collins. They seemed to have steps in the right direction last year with an opening win at Florida State with a route of Louisville on a Friday night primetime game. Um, and this was year three at home against an NIU team that, quite frankly, um, I thought Thomas Hammock might be in the hot seat coming into this year. They didn't win a game last year, and they have a really tough schedule ahead of them with uh, Michigan and Wyoming. And I, 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 I would not have been surprised if NIU was no more than a three-win team this year. And Maybe they are better than I thought they were, but I definitely did not see Georgia Tech losing at home to them on opening night. So I think I covered it all. I mean, we could talk North Carolina, but that's positive in your neck of the woods, so we can get to that in a little bit with Virginia Tech. But it, it, it was an ugly opening weekend. I mean, I, there's no way to put a lipstick on this pig. It was really, really bad for the ACC. They always had Clemson to hide behind. They probably still will, but it's not going to be as smooth as it was in recent years. Yeah, let, let's sum it up here. The ACC went 7-7 seven and seven, uh, in the opening week, which is fitting because ACC fans might need a stiff drink after how that w- had played out. <laughs> the three ranked teams in the opening week of the, uh, of the top 25 all lost. Clemson, UNC, Miami. Duke lost to a Charlotte team that went 2-4 and four last year. Georgia Tech lost to a Northern Illinois team that went 0-6 last year. Virginia Tech was a bright spot. It came at the expense of a top 10 UNC team. Florida State was uh, encouraging in a loss. This is one of the moral victories you're taking from the first week (laughs) is that a team lost. And to top it all off, as you mentioned at the top, Clemson uh, loses a game, hands an SEC team a major trump card that might be an important piece when you're looking at the playoff picture later in the season. I want to start talk a little bit more in depth about that Clemson game because, you know, they played really good defense in that game. I mean, they played them to a 3-3 draw <laughs> defensively. If, if they don't throw that pick six, who knows exactly where this is going and how we're talking about this game uh, today. There are problems on that offense, though. And I, I think we all kind of just assume that, uh, you know, DJ Uyunglele is going to come in and do what he did last year against Notre Dame, throw for 500 yards. Will Shipley and Justin Ross is back. And it just looked out of sorts. And you have to kind of wonder if that offensive line that has not performed that well the last couple of years is really catching up to that offense. I mean, this is a team that, even with Travis Etienne last year, did not run the ball very well, could not run it consistently. Uh, are we starting to see sort of some cracks in the foundation where th- this offensive line has maybe been masked by a couple things, by Travis, Trevor Lawrence's brilliance and Deshaun Watson's before that? Is this catching up to this program? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. I mean... I've said this before, and I'll say it again because it's doubly appropriate in light of Saturday night. I've never seen such an elite program that wins conference championships and makes college football playoffs year after year after year do it essentially in spite of their offensive line. It's just Mitch Hyatt was a four-year starter there in all everything, and he didn't even get drafted at left tackle. You know what I mean? Like They just haven't performed to the level of a national championship contender on that front. And I know that's ironic because they've won multiple national titles during that era, but that's just the reality of the situation. I mean, last year, the first go around at Notre Dame, and you mentioned Trevor Lawrence, and I think this is one of the, the kind of overlooked parts of how good he was. Uh, DJ Uyangale was great at Notre Dame. as a first career road start, threw for over 400 yards, uh, 40 points, I think, including overtime. The Notre Dame opponent 
passing yards record. And I think Travis Etienne finished with like 32 yards on 20 carries or something, something absurdly low. Like, and the only thing really different the second time around was Trevor Lawrence in there instead of DJ Uyangale. And it was just a different offense. And I don't say this to, like, we're going to make these comparisons all year because that's just what you do when you lose a number one draft pick. And I don't say this to dog DJ too much because I think he's an excellent player. But that offense just hummed differently. We saw it when he first came in 2018. We saw it um, when he came back from COVID last year. He just is so decisive, gets rid of the ball so quickly, gets it to his receivers in space so quickly, completely neutralizes any potential disadvantage they have up front. And they're just such a well-oiled machine with him back there. And obviously they won a title without him before he got there with Deshaun Watson. They were really close a year before that, and they've had other good teams without him as well, including 2017 when they ended the regular season as the top team in the country. Um, but I do wonder, like, do, do, as you said, is this an inflection point? Do you have to look in the mirror? Do, do the ACC Has the ACC been so poor that you haven't really allowed yourself to uh, truly identify what your shortcomings are as a program? Because clearly it's been that front for a while. Never was that more obvious than on Saturday night. And the idea of Clemson scoring just three points and the offense essentially being responsible for giving Georgia seven points and the deciding score is just not something I think any of us had in mind going into Saturday night. They didn't look great. I will say all the praise I just gave Trevor Lawrence. They did not look great offensively or defensively in that game against Ohio State to close the season last year. That was about as all-around poor performance as I think you could possibly ever see from Clemson. And I think there was – the optimist in Clemson in Clemson fans' mind was saying, well, we didn't have our, our offense coordinator. He missed that game with COVID. Like, things are different when you don't have your primary play caller there against Ohio State. Tony Elliott was back on Saturday night, and he had no answer for Kirby Smart and Dan Lighting. That was just an absolutely dominant performance from Georgia. Well, this is what we do after week one is we overreact because that's <laughs> what we have to do, and we've only had one data point, so that's what we're going to focus in on, and that's everything about it. Uh, Georgia is a pretty elite team. I mean, it's one of you know four or five teams every year that's going to be up there in the playoff hunt. They recruit at that kind of level. Uh, they have the most talented roster in the country. It's what, it's, I mean, it's I don't think there's any question 19 about it. five stars on the roster, something like that. It's I absurd. mean, that's what they do. They, they put together these incredible rosters. So that's a really good team. So we're judging Clemson against that team. Clemson's defense still looked very good. It looked like it was back after some of the, the issues that it had uh, maybe at times last year. Could Clemson still turn this thing around and make the playoff? I mean, it's going to require running the table at this point. And honestly, you're probably going to be favored in every game from here on out in the season. Now, we'll see. You know, maybe this is an indication that Clemson is not quite what Clemson has been in the past. But how do you look at Clemson in relation to the ACC now? I will say, because we're overreacting and because I've got three more days to pat myself on the back for this one until they blow it this week, I really liked NC State coming into this That's year. That's the kiss of death. Um, you have just given it the was. Kiss of death. I, oh, I, I gave him the kiss of death preseason. I was all on the Dave Doran bandwagon. Uh, they won forty-five nothing in their opener against former Clemson assistant Jeff Scott at USF. They open ACC play uh, in two weeks or two and a half weeks, September twenty-fifth, at home against Clemson. Those two coaches don't really love each other. Those games are always a lot closer than I think they should be. NC State fans will argue they've let Clemson off the hook in past years, and they've got a pretty sound argument in that department. 
if there was ever a good time to get Clemson, I do think it's the first month when they've already lost the game. They're still trying to figure themselves out offensively, and you're at home, and your expectations and your fan base, Wolfpack fans are crazy, are going to be at an all-time high. Like I, that's the game. I think I had circled beforehand as like the potential tripping point for Clemson ACC play. And I'm doubling down on that right now. And again, NC State plays an SEC team this week. I don't think it's a very good SEC team. It's Mississippi State. But it's also on the road at Mississippi State. It's a clanga-clanga. You know, Stark Vegas. It's a night game. Crazy things happen. And no program in the tenure of Dave Doran, I think, has had the ability to lose at least one game a year that they have no business losing. Um, which explains why they haven't won 10 games in a year yet, despite all their success. So I want to see them get through this week, but I really, really, really liked what I saw from NC State this week, and I'm more optimistic about them than I've ever been. Yeah, that'll be definitely one we'll talk about in a couple weeks. We'll get to NC State. I want to hit on this week's matchups toward the end of the podcast here. I do want to shift gears to what I thought was the most entertaining game of the opening weekend, Uh, Notre Dame 41, Florida State 38 in overtime. Uh, Admittedly, I was watching this, and I was almost ready to turn it off. At one yep. point, Notre Dame was up 18. Uh, seems like maybe some of the points that the Seminoles were getting were kind of fluky in some sense. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, uh, a helmet comes off. Mackenzie Milton has to come to the game. Uh, the, the, the comeback had started before that, but then Milton adds to it. It gets to the overtime with the, the crazy, uh, you know, did he throw an incomplete pass? He, <laughs> the, the field goal makes the kick. Yeah, And, you know, I, I'll defend Mike Norvell on this. Like, he's trying to make a 50-yard field goal, a 35-yard field goal, whatever it was. Every coach in the country would do that, so I can't fault him for that. Uh, and field goal kicker ends up missing it. Notre Dame makes the field goal to win. Brian Kelly executes his team. That's how it ended. Uh, that was that, that sums it up. What is your biggest takeaway on this game? Because I, I feel like we've seen Notre Dame in kind of a wild opener like this before, and we don't... Uh, didn't quite know what to make of it with that Texas game a couple years ago. It was, oh, Texas is back, and then it turns out, no, Notre Dame and Texas were both terrible. Uh, is this one where Florida State uh, is kind of back, or are the Irish overrated here? Yeah, poor Houston Griffith. He finally gets to start his senior year, and he actually had a really good game despite getting burned for a long touchdown um, in third and long in the third quarter, and then he was a guy who knocked off Jordan Travis's helmet and basically played the Mo Lewis to the New England Patriots, Drew Bledsoe, and allowed the backup quarterback to come in and change everything for the opposition. Um, I came out of that game with a lot more questions about Notre Dame than I had coming in. Uh, Marcus Freeman definitely won the offseason. He was the defensive coordinator hire that everyone wanted to get. Notre Dame outflanked LSU to get him. Recruiting has been at an all-time high, and they have deservedly you know, taken a victory lap with that, so to speak. They, they've earned a lot of praise for all the good stuff they're doing in the offseason. But there were always questions about this defense, particularly in the back end, and there were questions about, you know, how would Marcus Freeman coach up this group of players because the system is completely different from what they were running under Clark Lee, who all he did was go to two college football playoffs in three years as a coordinator there with no experience whatsoever before he got hired or promoted, I should say, to coordinator at Notre Dame. So, there are a lot of questions, I think, about that defense. Um, the linebacker group is supposed to be the deepest uh, on the roster. They're now down multiple players for the, the, the season. They've quickly thinned out. Um, they got after Jordan Travis in the first half. Uh, and then they went to a three-man front when Florida State was just kind of like, seemed like they were just, I don't know, 
trying to do anything, fall forward, get a few yards. I mean, they went for it on fourth and two deep in their own territory. Earlier in that half, they didn't get it. And for all intents and purposes, the game was and should have been over then. And Florida State just kind of hung around. And then when Mackenzie Milton came in, he really exposed that secondary, I think. You know, we know Kyle Hamilton's going to be probably a top 10 pick, but everyone around him is a bit of a question mark next to their name. So it was not the Notre Dame team we've been used to seeing in the last four years. They always are really good up front. They always are automatic in third and short situations. And they've always played kind of a top-down approach defensively where if they get the lead, they're comfortable and they can keep the ball in front of you and they can protect that lead. That was obviously not the case on Saturday night. Marcus Freeman has a lot of work to do, a lot of kinks to work out with his personnel to figure out who belongs where and what they need to be running when. Um, Conversely, on the positive side, I had no idea Jack Cohn was that good. Uh, He was automatic on third and fourth down. There were a couple deep shots they took for, for touchdowns that they connected on on third and short plays that, again, were automatic last year when you had a, a Joe Moore finalist, <clears throat> Joe Moore Award finalist offensive line and two elite, elite running backs. I think that offensive line, I, I knew they were going to be green. I knew they were going to struggle early on in an environment like that when it was the first game for a lot of those guys. Uh, so I'm not as concerned about them moving forward, especially when they have as talented running backs as they have. Uh, but, but that defense is definitely a cause for concern, at least in the short term. What do we make of Florida State? Because I thought this was uh, an interesting spot that the Seminoles were in that I don't think historically you really ever find them in. They were the lovable underdog in yeah. this game. When is that ever the case? They had some moxie. Uh, you look at some of the players that they had on the field, and obviously they had the feel-good story with Mackenzie Milton. I think uh, there was that. So there was the Bobby Bowden uh, hanging over everything like that, and people talking about, oh, is his spirit pushed this ball this direction or anything like that. Uh, it was wide left, not yeah. wide right. <laughs> Jermaine Johnson, I thought, was uh, really, really good, which it appears to be there's no shame in not starting for Georgia. If you're a defensive lineman there and you transfer somewhere else, you might be pretty dang good. Uh, I, I look at that team. They ran for a lot of yards. I feel like they had better quarterback play. I know Jordan Travis struggled a little bit throwing later in the game, but I feel like him and Milton combined just sort of gave that team perhaps some stability uh, that has been lacking in recent years. Could that and the improvement they get from some of these transfers and just an older roster and uh, you know Mike Norvell being in his second year and actually have an off season make a big difference for this program that you know honestly looked rudderless last season. Yeah, you know, feel good story not just you know from the nation but even from their fans. Again, that's a program that's won three national titles over the last thirty years and is not used to the down years they've experienced in recent years, but they got a walk in, walk off standing ovation from their own fans in defeat, which. I never thought I would see in Florida State, but it was a testament to the magic of that night, the the power of having a full stadium after a year away from each other, and obviously um, what Mackenzie Milton did was just you know medical miracle, for, for lack of a better term. Mike Norvell's a really, really, really good coach. Um, I don't think it was a question of if he would get this thing turned around. It was a question of when. And look, that offensive line, they played a lot better Um than they have in recent years. I'm still not sure how good they are. I mean, Jordan Travis was running for his life a lot in the first half. Uh, but but Mike Norvell dialed up some great play calls. Um, he took advantage of some poor tackling on Notre Dame. He caught them off guard uh, with a couple big runs. 
The third and long pass I mentioned earlier, um, I think it was a 61-yard touchdown pass that, that kept them into it, or gave them the lead, I should say, in the third quarter, was beautifully designed, Designed getting Notre Dame strong safety and single coverage in the slot. Uh, that's a really good coaching staff. They have good players on the roster. I think they're going to figure it out. The question for me is, it's easy in hindsight to say, did you start the wrong quarterback? Because they look so great with Mackenzie Milton in there. I'm not saying that's not a fair question. I do think that was a perfect cocktail of like emotions, events, a defense that had probably let its guard down a little bit with an 18-point lead, and just a you know a wave of momentum that you'll just never be able to recreate ever again this season. Like Mackenzie Milton coming back from a near leg amputation three years later, like on a national TV against Rudy School. Like that that was just like you couldn't write that up any better. Um, can they create recreate that spark? Can they keep that going on offense? Who's going to start moving forward? They weren't exactly clear this week. Both guys are or in the depth chart again. Now, I know they were again last week, but it, it sounded in hindsight like all along this was going to be Jordan Travis's job. Uh, how do they figure out that situation moving forward? And how do they, you know, the old adage, if you have two quarterbacks, you have none. I'll say this, no one looked happier for Mackenzie Milton than Jordan Travis when Mackenzie went in there and started firing those bullets. I mean, that was really a sight to see and behold and has to be encouraging if you're a Florida State fan. But is that going to keep up all season if they go with a two-quarterback system? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how Norvell uh, sorts that out, but I do think having two decent options is better than not having any options, which is what they've had. Uh, in recent years so maybe I, I think uh, Florida State has a bit more of a chance than I gave them before the season when I'm looking at that schedule all right we're, we're nearly 21 minutes into this thing we have not mentioned Virginia Tech's win over North Carolina I know Hokies fans are listening to this going this is a big first top 10 win since 2014 I don't need no mention you got to talk about Clemson and Florida State first and uh, I apologize for that, but here we are at the, at, at the game the Hokies uh, just completely befuddled Sam Howell in the opener and I was there and I witnessed it and I still don't quite believe how they did it because I saw what this defense was last year and how out of sorts it was I know there were all sorts of extenuating circumstances with personnel and you know preparation in Justin Hamilton's first year you didn't really have an off season and you know all the COVID things that went into everything but I did not expect that I did not expect them to hold this uh, UNC offense to 46 fewer points and 300 fewer yards than last year's game. And they made Sam Howell just look really uncomfortable, never look comfortable in the pocket, lots of pressure on him. He made uncharacteristic mistakes for him. Uh, that last interception where he's spinning out of a pressure and throwing it downfield, just that that's the kind of play you would expect a freshman quarterback to make, not a Heisman caliber uh, candidate like he is. Uh, does this make you think differently? Of the Hokies, I I know I've sort of changed my thought a little bit about what the ceiling of this team might be, just because this defense looks more legit. I'm curious what you thought about them coming into the season and, and where you think they could possibly go now. Yeah, I don't know how you can't feel better and differently about the potential trajectory of the season if you're a Hokies fan. Now, I, I guess you couldn't because it's a coastal and nothing makes sense. And you know the teams that look good one week end up laying eggs the next week, and they all go four and four every year. And, you pick a winner out of a hat, essentially. There were seven winners in seven years, and then Notre Dame. Like, <laughs> they gave up on the Coastal, essentially, after seven years of Coastal chaos. Uh, first top 10 win since 2014. I mean, that was that Ohio State team that went on to win the national title that year. So 
if you're hanging on to a threat, North Carolina fans, that's the thread to hang on to uh, as far as where you go from here. I was thoroughly impressed by that Virginia Tech performance defensively. Great call, greatly called game by Justin Hamilton. Uh, awesome atmosphere. Awesome to see Lane, Ta- Lane Stadium full again, to see Enter Salmon, to see that place rocking. I will point back to what our friend Pete Thamel over Yahoo tweeted after the game, which was reminder, an annual reminder that no one in the history of college football has won more off-seasons than Mac Brown. Um, the guy has a way with words, a way with people, a way with recruits. He's done a great job at North Carolina, much better job than I ever thought he was capable of doing at his age. Um, but I did, I did have, personally have some questions about this team coming into this year. Now, I didn't see that happening. I'm not going to, you know, say I saw that, but uh, they lost two unbelievable running backs. They lost two really good wide receivers. I was a believer in Sam Howell. I was not always a believer in that offense. They were always so inconsistent. Like, they lost games last year where they just didn't show up for a half, whether it was Florida State or Virginia or the second half of Notre Dame, although I would argue Notre Dame physically dominated them and took them out of the game that time around. I I just did not think this was a program that was consistent enough um, to, to really make a serious run at, at the ACC. Whereas Virginia Tech, I had pretty much rid of them off. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it seemed like last year Justin Fuente was going to lose his job, and he didn't. And it's so hard to get back up off the mat when you've basically been left for dead by your fan base. And if they lost that game, if they lost that game the way Vegas and everyone else thought they'd lose that game, it could have made for a very long drag of a season when you look at that schedule and some of the other opponents they have coming up. I mean, when, when Pete Sampson and I were going down Notre Dame's schedule a couple weeks ago on the Shamrock, we pointed to Lane Stadium and what a tough environment that could be, but we also said, hey, like, they could be reeling off a week one big defeat from a North Carolina team that put up a ton of points and yards on them last year. Who knows if they'll get up for that game. Now we're like, after the Forest State game, we're like, shoot, that might be Notre Dame's toughest game of the year going into Lane Stadium based on week one overreactions. I mean, it was such a, a, a enthralling performance from Virginia Tech that you have to come away encouraged. So, look, they don't have the easiest non-conference slate. Notre Dame going to Morgantown, which is never an easy place to play. Uh, it, it's going to be interesting monitoring that program moving forward. But uh, I do hope for their sake they found something to build off in week one and that those good vibes will help get everyone on the same page and and help that program get back to humming the way they were four or five years ago when Justin Fuente looked like the best hire of that cycle and it looked like there was not going to be any drop-off whatsoever from the Frank Bamer years. Yeah, it is interesting uh, how much the temperature can cool in a town after one top 10 win like that. Uh, I, I think what was interesting about this Virginia Tech team is last year – Fuente pointed out several times the importance of practice and this team needs to practice and this program needs to practice and they have that this offseason and when you give Fuente an offseason to prepare for a season opener he's pretty good uh, in those type of games he seems to have his team prepared and ready for those type of games it, it, it's not a team that they recruit so well that they're just going to go out in the field and just out talent you but it feels like if you give them time and they have preparation uh, they can be a competitive program. They did not have that last year. That was something that stood out quite a bit. So I, I'm curious to see how this team goes forward this year. Uh, I'm not uh, going to go, oh, they're the new Coastal Division favorites or something like that because I've seen them. They, they have to be after well, week one. <laughs> but I've seen them follow up top 25 wins before. 
and not play well. And we, we mentioned that 2014, I know it's a completely different team, but this program has kind of been like this for the last decade is they have a big win like the Ohio State one. They come back the next week and lose at home to East Carolina. They're down 21 nothing in the first quarter. I mean, that's just been the, the ebb and flow of this program lately. So I'm curious this week, they have Middle Tennessee, see if they can come out and have the kind of effort that you would expect them to have as a 20-point favorite in this game. I want to touch briefly on the Alabama uh, trouncing Miami 44-13 to because I don't know what else to say about this game. I mean, you you schedule Alabama in an opener at a neutral site, and this is what you get. <laughs> like, I don't know why athletic departments and, and uh, programs schedule the Crimson Tide because this is what they do. They, they simply reload. They come out. They hammer you. Hopefully, they don't break your program in the process. Uh, how are we feeling about Miami coming out of this? Do you even read anything into this, or you go, well, they just lost to the you know probable front runner for this year's national championship, and they do this to everybody? Both. I mean, I understand the freak out if you're a Miami fan right now. I mean, Manny Diaz got the head coaching job at Miami because he was such a good defensive coach uh, while he was a coordinator under Mark Rick there, and Miami's defense has not really impressed anyone. I mean, they played. Three ranked teams last year, and they gave up 500 or more yards in defeat in each one of those games, including more than 700 yards against North Carolina. And Manny Diaz took over the defensive play calling this year, and it was more the same against Alabama, um, even if that was to be expected. So I understand why you're pulling your hairs out right now if you're a Hurricanes fan. That said, as you alluded to, you just can't let this derail you as a program. I mean, it's... It's comical at this point what Alabama does to programs on neutral sites. I mean, let's go back. 2016, they beat USC. I think it was 52-3 to or something. And USC ended up starting 1-3 and in Clay Heldon's first full season. And if not for a quarterback switch to Sam Darnold, who knows where they go. Somehow Sam Darnold ends up saving them. They win the Rose Bowl and look like one of the best teams in the country at year's end. But, like, they were very much skidding thanks to Alabama. 2017, Florida State. That was supposed to be the most hyped week one game in college football history between two national title contenders. I think it was 24-7. DeAndre Francois goes down with a season-ending leg injury. Florida State goes 500. Jimbo Fisher leaves his Christmas tree out on the front lawn and ditches them for Texas A&M, and that program has not been the same since. 2018 Louisville. I was at that one. 51-14. Louisville goes 2-10. Bobby Petrino gets fired. 2019 Duke. Duke was coming off, I believe, an 8-5 season. Uh, in 2018 and they have not had a winning season since and they just lost on the road to Charlotte um, to open the 2021 season so if you're Miami right now I'm not saying that to scare the hell out of you although they rightly should scare the hell out of you because Alabama just does that to programs Um, you need to recover you need to I, I think essentially burn the game tape from that game because unless you play Clemson in the ACC title game you're not going to face a group of skilled players that talented uh, again this season. I mean, you'll face Sam Howell, quarterback-wise, who's really good, but but uh, nothing like what Alabama brought top to bottom. And you just got to get back to the fundamentals. Start tackling better. Play better defense. Uh, rely on your, your 24-year-old quarterback to make smart decisions. I, I don't think it should be that hard for Miami to compete in the Coastal this year. That was a great stat, by the way. I don't know if you were watching it. Um, during the game, the, the broadcast had a trivia. How many starting quarterbacks is De'Ara King older than in the NFL right now? And I think it was six. <laughs> so 
I know he's coming off a serious injury, but you guys have no excuses if you're Miami right now. You've got to play better on both sides of the ball. I think they will play better so long as they don't let that game get the best of them the way so many other Week 1 Alabama opponents have. And you just got to go out there and and play well. And, you know, in some ways – Appalachian State's no pushover. That's a good team. That's one of the better group of five programs in the country. It's a primetime game this Saturday night. I think that's in some ways a good, more accurate measuring stick for Miami. They got to turn the page quickly. They can't just take their foot off the gas, say we're playing an FCS team or whomever this week, and we can slowly but surely work out these kinks. No, you got to get to work immediately. And I'm looking forward to seeing what they've got Saturday night. Yeah, it's definitely one of those situations where you can't let Alabama beat you twice. Uh, I mean, you know, it was a bad opener, but it's one game in the standings, and a lot of teams are going to lose to Alabama this year, and probably a lot of teams are going to lose by 31 points like that. It's just what Alabama does to teams. So, uh, yeah, I'm curious, Miami, uh, that's a program that sometimes when it loses like that, it sort of packs it in. Uh, I would hope that that wouldn't happen uh, after a season opener like this when you have 11 games left in the season. So we'll see how the Canes bounce back. Any thoughts on uh, last night's game, or uh, I should say Monday night's game, uh, Louisville, it just looked overmatched against Ole Miss, lost 43-24. Uh, defensive issues didn't appear to be fixed. Offense didn't really look like it had much uh, life in that whole thing. Uh, no bounce back here for the cards? Was that just a bad opener against uh, you know, an SEC team that was pretty hot that game? I mean, if it was in a nutshell, I would be a lot more uh, pessimistic about Louisville. I think in some ways it was just kind of more of the same of what we saw all weekend from the ACC as, as depressing as that sounds like they just they were a big underdog going into that game they kind of proved everyone right Ole Miss overwhelmed them on both sides of the ball um, I, I mean I don't come out of there feeling good about Louisville that's for sure um, I'd be lying if I say there's no path back because again there's always a path back in the ACC but you know, this is year three for Scott Satterfield there. Year one could not have possibly gone better. I think no one thought they'd win more than three games in the first year after Bobby Petrino left. They went eight and five, won a bowl game. And last year, they they just could not protect the football. I don't think they were a bad team. They were just a sloppy team. It cost them multiple games. They had no business losing. Georgia Tech, chief among them. And then Scott Satterfield decided to go flirt with South Carolina for a job that he may or may not have actually had real interest in, but he completely misread the room because no fan base and program has been spurned by disloyal coaches more in the last decade than Louisville and there was a lot of goodwill to make up there and they certainly didn't do that Monday night with the way they played uh in their season over against Ole Miss but I do think there is a path back for them I do think there's talent on that roster it's a matter of taking care of the football uh playing sound on defense and, and seeing how that staff kind of cohesion grows week to week because there are a lot of new assistants on that staff. There was a bit of an exodus, exodus excuse me, um, at the end of last season. Dwayne Ledford, chief among them, the offensive line coach slash offense coordinator, who I thought was phenomenal, left for the Atlanta Falcons. Um, they're, they're a program worth monitoring, much as Miami, much as a lot of these teams that had underwhelming week one performances because there, there's like – there's a path back for these programs. Like some, when you get into conference play, teams are going to win. Like not everyone's going to lose every week. It's kind of like the opposite of the SEC, right? Like everyone's paying their coaches four or five million dollars and building these massive facilities, and half of them are going to lose every week. Um, as depressing as Week One was for the ACC, like 
a lot of these teams are going to win a lot of games this year because they're going to be playing each other and because eventually <laughs> there's going to be uh, a separation from the good and the bad. And uh, this is frankly what I miss about college football you know, in whole is the massive overreactions we have to week one. We're here not even two weeks in the season talking about how down the ACC is and can any of these teams come back. And other than NC State, I haven't really painted a pretty picture for, for too many of them. But um, I do think there is a path back. It's I just don't know how much we learned about these teams relative to each other when they all went out and, and had underwhelming performances in non-conference play in week one. Yeah, we have dwelled on the, the negative in this podcast uh, quite a bit on this. I'll skip over Duke and Charlotte and Georgia Tech losing to Northern Illinois. We don't need to revisit those. Uh, there were a couple good performances in the first week. I don't know how good these teams are, but I thought Boston College, UVA, Wake Forest all looked good. They played some patsies in the openers, so I'm not going to talk too much about them. They play some not-so-interesting teams this week, Boston College at UMass, Wake Forest, Norfolk State, and uh, UVA hosts Illinois, which maybe could be interesting, but Illinois just loses to uh, uh, Texas San Antonio last week, so it took a little shine off of that. I thought Syracuse actually uh, you know, showed me something. You know, I didn't expect much yeah. of the, the, the orange this year but they, they were they were underdog yeah, too like beat, upset city beat ohio 29-9 <laughs> host Rutgers coming up this week uh maybe if they win that one we'll talk a little bit more about them but there are two teams that, uh from the opener that i do want to talk about because they have interesting games coming up this week and i think we'll find out a lot more about them with how they play and you mentioned one at the top nc state uh shuts out south florida 45 to nothing they go to Mississippi State this week, and uh, you know the Bulldogs almost uh, laid an egg last week against Louisiana Tech. Had to have a fourth quarter rally to come back in that one and win. Mike Leach team you know, obviously can throw the ball a ton. It can uh, stress you that way. I'm interested in seeing how the Wolfpack hold up on that. That was a pick em originally, and now I think it's two and a half uh, in NC State's favor on the betting line. Uh, you know, Devin Leary looked pretty good that was that te- that was a different team when he was a quarterback for them last year I think they could be a pretty good team with him as the quarterback there they ran great with Zonovan Knight and Ricky Person obviously had the shutout so the defense was doing something right how do you think they can hold up uh, in an SEC stadium against uh, an SEC team that likes to chuck it around I think this is the ultimate telling point for, for NC State because this is a game that past good NC State teams would find a way to lose um regardless of how good or bad Mississippi State is this year. And I, I don't personally think they're all that good. This is a game on paper that the Wolfpack should win. And if they win that, uh, you have two impressive non-conference wins under your belt. Even if you lose to Clemson in a couple of weeks, you still feel pretty good about the, tra- the trajectory of your season and about making a run and doing something that rarely has been done in the history of NC State. I think they have one 10-win season in the history of their program, which is pretty crazy to think about and say out loud when you look at some of the talent that's come through there. But that's reality. Um, Dave Doran is in his ninth year there. He's about as known a commodity as it, as there is in the ACC. And unfortunately, the book on him is they lose these games. Um, they, they rarely play strong non-conference opponents. I mean – they loaded up with Patsy's his first four or five years there. I think 2016 Notre Dame, which was forced upon them by the ACC's agreement, was the first time they played a Power 5 non-conference opponent. So uh, this they're, they're not used to, to, to playing in an environment like this or playing on the road like this um, against a Power 5 team. I'm trying to think. 2017, they lost week one in Charlotte to someone they should not have lost to and ended up costing them. 10 wins. I'm trying to remember who it was off the top of my head. I can look that up. But I think it was West Virginia. 
But I just remember thinking like that was the equivalent of North Carolina losing to South Carolina in 2015 when North Carolina was trying to make a playoff push under Larry Fedora. So I think we learned how grown up and mature this program is this week when they go into that environment. Um, doesn't have to be pretty. It rarely is with NC State. But that's a game where they should win. And if you get that one out of the way, things start to open up for you a little bit, especially in this league. But, I mean, they were – I'll say this. They did not leave any doubt Thursday night. And rarely have I said that about NC State program. Even when they win the games, they should win. They always kind of screw around a little bit, let the other team score points. They have no business scoring, throw you know interceptions or, or turn the ball over uh, when they shouldn't. And like you said, they ran the ball extremely well. They almost had 300 yards on the ground. Devin Leary, I think, is a, is a good quarterback. I thought they, you know, if they had a good season last year, I thought they would have had a better season if he stayed healthy and started the, throughout the course of the season. Um, I think they're in a really good place right now. They, they, they need to win this game to, to keep that program in a good place and maybe, just maybe, make a run this year. 2017 opener in Charlotte, 35-28 loss to South Carolina. Uh, oh, I'm followed sorry. up with Marshall Furman. Uh, so yeah, that you know that's been sort of their history. Haven't had necessarily the strongest non-conference schedules. I guess if you're going to play an SEC team uh, outside of Vanderbilt, maybe Mississippi State is the right one to catch right now. I, I don't know. There's not maybe LSU might be the right one to catch right now. South Carolina. Yeah, that, that's another one as well. The other game I was interested in, in the ACC uh, this week is Pitt uh, playing in the Johnny Majors Classic. Uh, going to Tennessee, that was also a pick'em to open. I think. I, I think I saw that. Now I see Pitt's favored by like three and a half, something like that. Uh, Pitt uh, ran all over UMass in the open, fifty-one to seven. I don't know what you take from that, uh, other than they ran for two hundred twenty-three yards and five touchdowns, and that's uh, maybe a little bit instructive because last year they could not run the ball. That was a very unPitt-like team that just. I don't know what happened. They just couldn't run the ball. Uh, they haven't been able to run the ball very well uh, in recent times. Uh, so that's probably a solid sign going forward this year. I don't think Tennessee is necessarily all that either. I mean, they beat Bowling Green in the opener 38-6. Uh, to six. It probably should have been more than that. I think they made a, a bunch of mistakes in, in a game that uh, you do that against a pit team. I think they'll make you pay for something like that. I'm curious what you think of, of this matchup and another ACC team going into SEC territory. Very similar to NC State. I mean, another program that I think more often than not can't get out of its own way. Uh, a defensive-minded coach whose programs haven't always been the soundest defensively. Um, but a team that has good players and a team that's going into a tough environment against a team that they probably should beat. Although I, I'm a lot less bullish on Pitt going into Tennessee than I am NC State going into Mississippi, Mississippi State. I mean, NC State, the only question I have is basically history, whereas Pitt, I don't know. Um, last year they got off to the hot start and they played an NC State team that uh, wasn't off to a hot start. I mean, they lost that opener of Virginia Tech by a lot. They had some early season COVID issues. That was a very, very big spread. I just thought, like, this is the ACC. NC State's going to win that game. And sure enough, that's what they did. And, you know, they ended up having a much better season than I thought and Pitt much worse season than I thought. But uh, Kenny Pickett's got to be older than me and you at this point, right? I mean, well, let's not go that far. Forever. <laughs> let's not <laughs> Maybe go. me. Um, <laughs> he's, he has been there forever. And I hear a lot about him. I think he's pretty good. I don't know if he's great, but I also think if you bet in one offense and one program for that long, you know what you're getting, and you should be 
if nothing else, very sound fundamentally and, and should be able to take care of business. Um, whether this game qualifies under the umbrella of taking care of business, I don't know. Tennessee historically has been the program more than any others that shoots itself in the foot. Maybe things change with the Josh Heupel era, although they had such a mass exodus from the portal when Jeremy Pruitt got fired that I just don't know what's really left on that roster at this point. Joe Milton looked good. I will say that. It was only Bowling Green, but Joe Milton looked like a different Joe Milton in Tennessee's opener last Thursday night, and that's always a raucous place to play. And there are, you know, there are the underlying themes. The Johnny Majors Classic, as they're called it. There, there, there's a shared history between these two programs, even if it's not necessarily on the field against each other. It should be a cool environment. Rarely do you get to see... Um, I mean, when's the last time the ACC team played at Neyland Stadium? I know Virginia Tech played them at Bristol Motor Speedway a few years ago, which was cool in its own right, but I can't recall the last time an ACC team went into to Knoxville, which is one of the best game day environments of the country. So um, are, are, is Pitt up for that? Can Pitt get out of its own way? Because, again, much like NC State, they've made a habit of losing games they have no business losing, and – and that that's why they've they've been where they have been. I mean, they they did win the coastal a few years ago, albeit with a seven and seven final record. But um, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I've I, it's a program that has shown me who they are so many times in the past that I'm hesitant to put too much stock into them right now. As good as they looked in week one, I think this is a game they're capable of winning. I am surprised they are favorite. Well, it was a rough weekend for the top teams in the ACC. We'll see if this middle class of ACC teams with Pitt and NC State and BC and maybe Virginia Tech's at the top of that now after the week one win. I feel like there could be some quality programs in the middle of this conference. That's maybe not going to do anything for the overall reputation because everybody always judges how things are at the top. So, Matt, I think we've come to the end of it here. I think we covered it all. Thanks for coming on and uh, – I don't know if you talk people off the ledge in the ACC or push them further off the ledge <laughs> in how this goes, but we appreciate your perspective as usual. I, I figure now's the time I should make a Brian Kelly execution joke about the ACC, but seeing how that went for him on Sunday night, I think we should just leave it be. Yeah, it was Michael Scott-like in him delivering it. It was like him, <laughs> that's exa- that's what was thinking, like yeah. him trying to tell the updog joke or something like that. He just completely butchers <laughs> it in his own way. Well, we'll finish this off before I butcher any more jokes here. Everybody go follow Matt uh, on Twitter at Matt underscore Fortuna. That's another show in the books here. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, We'll be back again to do it next week. Please go rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps us get the word out. Go subscribe to The Athletic, too. Uh, We have a great deal right now for another week, I think, maybe less than a week, 50% off. Go to theathletic.com slash pod to get the greatest deal. We'll be back to wrap up next week's ACC action. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.